All right, who stayed up past midnight last night? Did you? So, okay, 18 innings, right? That's a lot. Um, Jennifer and I, the kids had homecoming last night, so we had the chance to go have a date and we went to like this nice restaurant and we had a late reservation and the game was still on. So we sat at our nice table with our nice meal with my phone and we watched the entire game <laughs> at the restaurant, like you should. And then uh, we got home um, and I, we had some other stuff to do. We got home and I started going over the sermon again. I really wasn't happy with it. So I start messing with it and I'm up late and it's already midnight. So I go to get in bed and I turn on the TV and the Dodgers are losing. And I was like, come on. An Astros win and a Dodgers loss in the same day? Hallelujah. I shared that at 9.30 and then agreed that we probably need to pray for my repentance for, you know, enjoying somebody else's suffering. <laughs> but, but it is the Dodgers, you know, so. Um, but we are not here to talk about baseball. Uh, I, I don't think we are. We're here to talk about Jesus. Um, we gather and worship each week for a few reasons. Um, we get together each week um, to be encouraged, uh, to encourage one another. Like, y'all, life is hard, Right? You know, we need to encourage one another sometimes like just to get through the week. Uh, we need to encourage each other uh, that whatever we're going through, that, you know, God's got this, like one way or another. Um, one way or another, everything's gonna be all right. And that's true, even if sometimes it feels less true than it really is. Um, it's true, it requires a deep faith. Like Roland said last week, that's a seed that's planted deep in good soil. So we gather to encourage one another, for sure. We also gather to equip one another. Um, here at First Pres, we're focused on uh, becoming a people that are, you guys know the language, we're biblically literate, we're spiritually formed, we're mission-focused, gospel-fluent, and we do all this so that we can be disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus. That's why we exist. We're trying to be a people who love God and who love our neighbor as ourselves. So we're here to encourage, we're here to equip one another, we're here to celebrate, we gather to celebrate each week. We have been given this incredible gift and it's a gift that we don't deserve. Like we have been invited into this deep, loving relationship in which we are clearly the weaker partner. We are incapable of fully returning the kind of love that we receive from God. But when we learn to trust, when we learn to obey, to recognize who God is, who we are, then we're in the truth and the truth sets us free. And when we are free, we can celebrate, celebrate the good news. That's another reason we get together. And then the fourth reason we gather each week uh, to remember. We gather to remember who God is and what God has done. And when we remember that calls us to return and to repent often. Like we are a people of the reformation. We are reformers and wear that proudly. We're reformed and always reforming according to the word of God. That means that we recognize that only God is good and that we are sinners. That when things go sideways for us, we repent, we return to scripture and we invite God to transform us once again into the people he's calling us to be. So we gather to remember who God is and what God has done. So the challenge we face each week is to find balance between those four things. And we try to do that as we plan worship that we wanna encourage, we wanna equip, we wanna celebrate, and we wanna remember. Uh, but I'm afraid today that might be a little bit out, out of balance. Um, and I'm gonna blame the Gospel of Mark for this. Uh, I'm about to read a really familiar story to you. Um, but I wanna warn you that we're gonna be heavy on remembering today. Uh, 
Um, and, and that can be really hard. Um, I spent most of the week looking really hard for a wor- word today that would just encourage you, um, that would build you up. That's not what the story is about. <laughs> um, the story offers us something else and it's something profound and it's something good. And our job is to be faithful to the text, to read what's there, not to pull out what we wish was there, to be faithful to the text. So let's read this together. We'll trust that the Holy Spirit's gonna guide us. This is from Mark chapter four. I'm gonna start in verse 35 and read through verse 41. Uh, Again, many of you are very familiar with this story. It goes like this. And as, as you hear it, because you're so familiar, try to be unfamiliar. Try to hear it for the first time. Picture, picture it in your mind. Try to see things that maybe you haven't seen before. Mark writes this. He says, on that day when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let's go across to the other side of the lake. So after leaving the crowd, they took him along just as he was in the boat and other boats were with him. Okay, right there. When you picture Jesus calming the seas, do you picture just one boat with 12 disciples or do you picture a fleet? You probably just picture one boat with 12 disciples, right? That's what all the paintings say. (laughs) What does the scripture say? There were many boats. This is a dramatic scene. A lot of people are involved. It says a great windstorm developed and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was nearly swamped. But he was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. The stern for you land lovers is the back of the boat. (laughs) He's sleeping on a cushion. They woke him up and said to him, teacher, don't you care that we are about to die? So he got up and rebuked the wind. He said to the sea, be quiet, calm down. The wind stopped and it was dead calm. Um, Jesus is asleep. Teacher, don't you care that we're about to die? Think about the tragic irony that's gonna come 10 chapters later. And Jesus is literally about to die and he takes his disciples into the garden to pray with them and what are they doing? They fall asleep three times. Not because they were peacefully sleeping, trusting in God's providence and God's provision in all things. Mark says in that, says they fell asleep because their eyes were heavy as their savior prepares to die. I think Mark wants us to see that. He says to the sea, be quiet, calm down. The wind stopped, it was dead calm. And he said to them, why are you cowardly? Do you still not have faith? They were overwhelmed by fear and said to one another, who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's be to God, let's pray. Father, just pray that you would take this familiar story and make it unfamiliar to us. Help us to hear it fresh. Help us to see the gospel proclaimed in it Not the gospel as we want, but the gospel that you have given. So open our minds, our eyes, our ears, our hearts that we can receive it and pray that as we go out this week that you would use our hands and our feet and our words, our very being to accomplish your purpose in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. So actually, I wanna go back, I wanna work backwards this week. I wanna start with the so what. (laughs) I wanna get that out of the way so we can understand what the story is not about. Because when we understand what the story is not about, we're gonna be able to more clearly see what Mark is trying to tell us. Uh, This is from a scholar named David Garland from a really good commentary series called the NIV Application Commentary. It's a great series if you wanna go a bit deeper into the text and also apply it to life. Um, 
But what he says is important, and I'm gonna tell you it's hard. What he says is hard, but it's important because it keeps us from misunderstanding the purpose of the story that we just read. So uh, he says this. He says, the miracle of the storm does not teach us to endure adversity patiently because Jesus will eliminate the problem. The emphasis in this story is on who Jesus is, not on how he rescues fretful disciples from danger whenever they cry out to him. Storms are a part of life from which no one escapes, not even Jesus. There are no stormless seas. All sailors must learn to expect the unexpected. Chaos hits our lives and it can all happen so quickly. One moment all is well, then in a flash all is hell. I thought that was pretty good. He wrote that, not me. He goes on, he says, Mark helps us learn to trust in a savior who does not promise to deliver us from storms, but promises to deliver us through them. Christianity is not a refuge from the uncertainties and insecurities of this world. There are no safe places in this life, but what you will find in Jesus is a security and a serenity that this world does not know and cannot give. Christians know that Jesus has done the battle and has won. He has beaten down the savage storms and now you have no reason to fear anything from nature or the supernatural, from life or from death. And he goes on to make his point by reading this from Romans chapter eight. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither life nor death, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Y'all, the Bible doesn't promise freedom from these adversities. If anything, it promises that this is exactly what we'll face. The great promise, the good news, is that none of those things, nothing, is powerful enough to separate us from the love of God. Now, look, that might not, I don't know what you brought in here today, that might not be the encouragement that you were looking for. But y'all, I'm telling you that it's good news. It's the core of the good news that it's true, that it's a reminder. And when we remember this truth, that's when we can fully celebrate who God really is, not the God that we create or want him to be. The story does not teach that if you simply turn to Jesus in the storm, that he will always miraculously calm the seas. He does not always deliver us from storms. It's through the storms that we find salvation. That is the straight biblical truth. And we need this reminder of all people, Jesus' disciples must know this because this is the only way that we can learn to not only tolerate the suffering and the storms that we face, it's the only way that we will ever find real joy in the midst of them. All right, so now that we know what the story isn't teaching, Why does Mark take us on this journey at all? Why does he take us on this journey with the disciples, with Jesus across a stormy sea? Um, I don't know if you knew this. I actually wasn't aware of this until just this past week. Um, The Gospel of Mark, it's the first text ever in history that refers to this body of water that we call the Sea of Galilee. It's the first text in history 
that has ever called it a sea. Did you know that? It was never before called a sea. Do you know why? It's not a sea. (laughs) It's a lake. (laughs) Like it was known at the time as Lake Tiberias or Lake Kinneret. And if you go home today and do a simple search, you're going to find that the Lake of Galilee is roughly 41,000 acres or 64 square miles. That might sound like a lot, but do you know how big Lake Livingston is? It's 83,000 acres, 130 square miles. That's literally twice as large. This is no sea. So why does Mark call it one? And I think he does it on purpose. He does it because he wants us to remember. And I am convinced at the end of the story that standing in the boat with Jesus after the seas are calm, I'm convinced that the disciples remembered something. And that's why the story told us they were more afraid after the storm than they were during it. So let me show you this. This comes from the account, the second day of creation in Genesis 1. If you want to understand something in scripture, where do you go? To the beginning, every time. Then God said, let there be space between the waters to separate the waters of the heavens from the waters of the earth. And that's what happened. God made the space to separate the waters of the earth from the waters of the heaven. God called the space sky. And evening and morning came, marking the second day. Then God said, let the waters beneath the sky flow together in one place so that dry ground may appear. And that's what happened. God called the dry ground land and the waters sea And God saw that it was good. On the second and third days of creation, what is God commanding as he creates? He's commanding the waters. (laughs) He's telling them what to do. He's creating boundaries. He's separating the waters above, which later the Bible will call storehouses of rain and snow. He's separating those waters from the waters below and then separating the waters below so that dry land can form. The first thing that God does after calling light out of the darkness, after creating day and night, the first thing God does is command the waters to move. Because only God can command the waters to move. This is a major theme that runs all throughout God's story. In the story of the flood, as a response to our willingness to live within the boundaries that God created for us, what did God do? He just removed the boundaries that separated the waters. He removed the boundaries that he established to to protect us, to keep us safe because we refuse to live by the ones that he set for us. When God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt, what did he do? He parted the sea. When his people entered into the promised land, what did he do? He parted the river. At the end of the Bible, the throne room scene in Revelation tells us about his final command over the seas. It says, in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. It's a promise that one day there will be no more chaos. There will be no more fear, no more destruction, no more death. God is the one who commands and calms the winds and the waves. This is the reason Mark tells us this story. Because he wants us to ask the same question his disciples asked in verse 41. Who is this? Who is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? Who is this Jesus? He is the one who commands and calms the wind and the waves. 
He is God with us. But what's really fascinating to me is that before they ask this question, I mentioned this a couple minutes ago, before they ask it, the text tells us that they were overwhelmed by fear after the storm has been calm. Now look, I'm sure that they were afraid on the boat while the boat's taken on water in the storm, but look, most of them had been through that before. Like storms on this lake are a pretty regular occurrence because of the surrounding geography. The valleys are like these tunnels that the winds blow through and these violent storms just come up out of nowhere. It happens all the time. And most of these guys were fishermen. They had boats. Now, it could be that this storm was more violent than most. I'd actually argue that's probably true because of the language. When Jesus says, be calm and be still, it's the same language he uses when he approaches the demons in chapter one. So it does seem like this is a little more intense. But a storm like this would not have been completely unfamiliar to them. What I think is fascinating is that the text never tells us that they were afraid during the storm. It just tells us they didn't understand why Jesus was asleep. Like, why is he asleep as their lives are being threatened? What was bothering them is really a deep question. Like, don't you, do you not love us? Like, don't you care that we might die? The text never tells us that they were afraid during the storm, but it tells us clearly that they were afraid once the storm was over. Why? I'm telling you, it's because they realized in that moment that the power outside the boat, the power of the wind and the waves, that even that unmanageable, uncontrollable power was no match for the power that was resting inside of it. The power outside the boat is no match for the power inside of it. And when you think about that, it is terrifying. Like they remembered, they remembered the Old Testament stories that we talked about a minute ago. They knew the answer to their question. They knew that only God commands and controls the wind and the waves. They realized they were in the boat with God with us. And they experienced overwhelming fear. I mentioned the Exodus story earlier. God parts the sea so that the people are freed from slavery. Uh, later on, God's presence is with the people, right? He gives them the Ten Commandments. He gives them to Moses. The scene is really dramatic. This is from Exodus 20. It says, the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and the, and the mountain and smoke and they trembled with fear. But here's the deal. It says they stayed at a distance and they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we'll listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. And Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you and keep you from sinning. But the people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. The disciples remembered the stories. They recognized who was in the boat with them. And just like their ancestors about Sinai generations ago, they stood there trembling in fear. Maybe even more afraid because they're stuck in the boat with them. <laughs> like they can't get away. He doesn't teach them the walking on water trick until later. <laughs> they stood trembling in fear of the God whose power is unmanageable and uncontrollable. And y'all, that's the thing about religion, and I mean it in the negative sense. 
Like that's what religion does. It attempts to control and contain the power of God. And that's insane. That's ridiculous. If you could contain and control him, he's no God at all. And that's ultimately why, ultimately why religion, in the negative sense, that why it fails. What we need is the gospel. Because the gospel moves us from the kind of paralyzed fear that the disciples experienced to a healthy and appropriate fear of the Lord. A fear that doesn't push us away from Jesus, it draws us closer to him. You see, we don't have to experience this as paralyzing fear because we know something the disciples don't. That even though they're right to be afraid of a power they can't control, this is the power that will save them. And not just from a storm on a lake one afternoon, it's the power that will restore all of creation, fix everything that's been broken once and for all. This is the power that will save them from being separated from God forever. I've shared this with some of you before, but I had a spiritual director who once helped me understand the positive power of fear, the usefulness of fear, the reason that scripture reminds us that we are to fear God. Yes, there is a sense of awe and wonder, a sense of respect that goes with it, but it's more than that in scripture. So he, he told me this, he said, fear is an organizing principle. So uh, somebody be brave, um, admit in front of everybody here something that you're afraid of, just say it out loud. What? Snakes. Tammy, you're the best. Somebody always says snakes. Like, I, I just put it right in the script, right? Because, I mean, I knew somebody was going to say snakes. If nothing else, I knew my wife would. So, um, do you know why somebody always says snakes? Because they're awful. Because they're awful? That's one reason. It's biblical. <laughs> like, Genesis 3, baby. Okay, so, so you're afraid of snakes. So the question is, I won't focus on you anymore, I promise. You're not the only one afraid of snakes. Uh, the question is, you're afraid of snakes, so what do you do? Yeah, yeah, stay away from them. But even more than that, you don't go places where the snakes might be. I heard somebody say, kill them. You know, we'll just stay away, but I, I get it, I get it. Um, so I'm actually not afraid of snakes. Um, when I was a kid, that's what we did for fun. We would go looking for snakes and I had a friend who had aquariums in his room and we would catch them and keep them there because we couldn't keep them in my house. Uh, but that's what we did for fun. Uh, we went and we, we caught snakes. Uh, it drives my sweet wife crazy. Uh, like last week when we were in Galveston um, and I'm walking, looking into the sand dunes um, which have signs right next to them that say, stay away because of rattlesnakes, <laughs> right? Um, or when I'm like peering into the woods, looking on the green belt, just hoping to find one of those beautiful little copperheads, like <laughs> totally acknowledge it, not normal. <laughs> Most of you, like my wife, you're afraid of snakes because you're normal. So, so the point is you stay away from the places where snakes like to hang out. All right, do you get it? Fear is an organizing principle. It impacts where you go, what you do. Your fear impacts your behavior. It impacts the way you live in the world. Now that can be healthy until it's not, right? For some, that organizing fear can become crippling. It can keep them from doing anything. That's not what God desires from anyone. You see, I really believe that when we're trying to apply this story to our lives, I think that God is trying to show us that he's redeeming our fear. That he's, he's making fear an organizing principle so that we can truly live. 
When the Bible calls on us to fear the Lord, what it's doing, it's teaching us to organize our lives around him, not to avoid him. Be surrounded by him, be engulfed by him, be overwhelmed by him so that he's the one guiding our steps, so that his will guides our behavior, so that his way informs every part of our lives. The disciples were afraid of Jesus, but we can fear God without being afraid because we know something the disciples don't, that the power that calmed the wind and the waves will one day be put to death. It'll put to death death itself. It'll bring to an end all chaos and suffering. That because God is good, that we can fear him without being afraid. Tammy's gonna love this too. I mean, I, I can't get away with preaching about this without mentioning the great line from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right? Um, C.S. Lewis writes this fictional conversation uh, between a character, Susan, and Mr. Beaver, and they're discussing Aslan, this great lion, the Christ figure in this series of books. And it, it, says, it goes like this. Um, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. But I'd thought that he was a man. Is he... Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. This picture, this is a, I know it's hard to see because we put the whole thing on the screen, but this is a Rembrandt. He painted it in 1633. It's one of the reasons you think there was only one boat, but we'll forgive him for that. Um, he called it the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, it's a beautiful painting. It's really emotional, but I wanna show you something, um, see if Noah can zoom in on this. Um, look at that guy right there in the blue. So art is subjective. Um, so, you know, take this for what it's worth. But what's that guy doing? I think he's looking at me. <laughs> like, like, I think he's looking at you. Like, think about it. In the midst of the storm, what's everybody else in the boat doing? If you look at the picture later, everybody else, they're either trying to wake Jesus up or they're trying to keep the boat afloat. What's he doing? Y'all, I think he's looking right at us. Rembrandt does this all the time. Rembrandt does what I believe the writer of the Gospel of Mark is doing. They're inviting us into the story. How will you respond? Like after calming the storm, Jesus asks his disciples. He says, why are you so cowardly? And then he says, where is your faith? One translation says, where have you put your faith? Like where'd you leave it? Did you leave it back on the shore? Did you forget to bring it with you for this trip? But it's a profound question. Where have you put your faith? Like, is he only your savior when all is hell? When things are falling apart? Or does he also get to be around and involved when all is well? Like, is he just the miracle worker who can get me out of a bind? Or is he my loving savior who descended to the depths of hell to free me from it? Like, do I want to be near him only because of the things that he can do for me? Or do I desire to be near him because of who he is? 
because he's my savior and my friend. He's the king. Is he the king over every aspect of your life or not? There is some good news in this story. There is some encouragement. I think this story does encourage us that that whatever you're going through, like whatever it is, like he's right there in it with you. And that as you're going through it, don't mistake his peace. Don't mistake his trust in God for apathy. Like maybe some of you a couple weeks ago, we said when something bad happens, maybe, maybe someone would ask like, why God did you allow this to happen to me? Like maybe you won't ask that, but maybe you will ask like, God, do you care? Like, do you see what's happening? Do you even know what's going on? Do you love me? Like, here's the thing. He's not just there with you in your storm. Like, he went through all the storms himself. He's not asking you to do and persist through anything that he hasn't already done. He suffered as we suffer. He died the death and paid the price that we couldn't all so that we might truly live. Y'all, Jesus is not only powerful, he is power. He is not safe, but he is good. Amen? Let's pray. Grateful Father, as always, um, that you would take familiar things and make them new. Let's pray that you continue to do that within each of us as we walk through this gospel as we consider what it means to believe and proclaim the gospel, that others might be drawn into your presence, that they would come to know and experience your love just as so many of, so many of us already have. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,